And welcome back, listeners, to our second episode of the 90 or Nothing podcast studio. We're here today gathered with Ben Tapp, from, originally from the Northern Territory at Kalani Station. And we're going to get in a bit of an interview with him about the insights of camp drafting and his life beyond that. And uh, today I'm joined here with Kylie Barnett, who's going to take the reins in the interview. And yeah, we'll go from there. How are you going today, Kylie? Yeah, good, Paxton. Yeah, yourself? Yeah, no, good. Just keen to get on with this interview. Um, yeah, I'll hand over to you. Yeah, well, obviously this is my partner, Ben Tapp, and um, thanks for being part of our podcast today. Uh, editing to keep you happy, honey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we uh, decided to pick Ben because he has quite an interesting uh, life with horses and camp drafting, and Warwick Gold Cup's coming up shortly, and um, he's won two Warwick Gold Cups, and we just sort of feel we could um, get a really good insight to Ben and his horses and bit of an overview of your whole life. Um, so you were, grew up in the Northern Territory, Kalani, and you're one of ten. Just a little bit about your life there and, and your family and the size of the station and, and your education, schooling. It's, it's very different to the, very, the normal everyday life. Yeah, yeah it was. Um, our life at Kalani growing up was unique and it was unique no matter who came there it was just how it was it was um Clarny was a big cattle station when I was born Dalfell had already been there for probably 10 years but my stage when I was born it was pretty raw living you know we just lived under tents or on the banks of the creek and Lived by a campfire, no electricity and all that sort of stuff. Like we had, uh, lived with a lot of Aboriginals. So it was just sort of living on the land and he was trying to build this property up. And then it sort of really got into serious developments on the property late 60s and eventually turned it into the jewel of the territory and probably the jewel of the whole north. You know, we had developed beautifully, had quarter horses, Santa Catrudas. We ran about 40,000 head and we ran at our peak probably 250, 300 horses. Uh, we used to muster on horseback as kids way before helicopters, back with just Aboriginal stockmen, you know, we had about 15 or 16 Aboriginal stockmen and then us kids. And we'd go out mustering just horseback with our pack mule and swag and you'd go away six, seven, eight weeks just mustering come home with what you got, you know, and then brand and eventually progress to the late 70s, 76, 77, the helicopters started to turn up and then the demand for horses, we still used horses right through to the mid-80s, but um, slowly the helicopters took over and motorbikes and all that sort of stuff, so, but that childhood one of thing back then that's where horses came part of our life it was not from just today oh i like a horse and i want to go camp draft and they were just part of our life they were what you used and then from there the sport came second you know so we just had when we first went to our camp drafts i think i was eight or nine went to catherine show camp draft and you just took your good camp horse from the what you had in the stock camp you know and um yeah, fortunately, we sort of competed pretty good right from the beginning. Um, 
Yeah, the early success, I won an Open up there in, when I was 13. And this is it's judged by uh, John Stanton. And I was I won the junior that day as well. And then, then back in them days, there was no ACA or ABCRA or anything. It was just sort of, I don't know where the rules come from actually, but <laughs> the older fellas didn't like me winning that Open and they all tried to protest and said, oh, he doesn't, I shouldn't ride in this, he's only a kid, he's not allowed in here. And then anyway, thank God old John Stanton stood up for me and told him to go away and get a better horse and come back and beat me <laughs> next year. So <laughs> um, so that was the sort of first taste, that was 1978. Mm. And um, yeah, then went along, Camp Draft and, you know, Camp Draft with that, uh, Kalani, we wouldn't do many. When we were kids, we'd do Catherine Chow, and I think there was Renner Springs back then, and Timber Creek might have been just starting uh, daily waters. You might only do three or four a year, you know, and a little break in the stock camp. You might have done two big musters, and then everybody just sort of had a little mini break, three or four day, and then back into your mustering again, you know. And did all the family go on those camp drafts, like all the siblings? Yeah, not all. Some of the girls, they drafted early on or rode horses, but then not them. And then most of all us blokes or sons, brothers, um, yeah, we all went together. And then as things got a bit later, some started to go to boarding school, like... The older brothers went away and then there was only a few left that went. And, but, yeah, at our peak, all six of us would have went somewhere. That's Billy, Sam, Joe, me, William, Daniel. And, as I said, the sisters did a little bit but didn't take it up that much. So, yeah, that was dealt right up, you know, camped up, mustering and all that until about the uh, mid-80s, late-80s. And then things went all a bit different. Then there's a whole other story about what happened at Killarney and all that. And I sort of lost that and bought another couple other cattle stations and then went to Merrifield and Rover Valley. And sort of then we all split up by then. You know, each brother sort of went his own way then in early 90s. Yeah, a fairly big family and, you know, a group of boys. I'm sure you got up to plenty of mischief on the station. Surely, what tell us a bit about what what happened when on there. Yeah, there's always something happening, eh? Because it was not only us on the station, it was us family, of course, but we had this Aboriginal, sort of a lot of Aboriginal kids with us as well. And back then, because we were isolated and there was no school of the air, the old fella actually built a school on the property. So we had, there was us and then probably, you know, 12 or 15 other Aboriginal kids as well. And then, yeah, we used to sort of do serious work through the day and then school. And then, but in any time off, we'd just sort of go down the creek, buddy hunting with the Aboriginal, you know, making boomerang, buddy walk along, chasing goannas, that sort of story. So, but yeah, it was just forever. There was always something, you know, it was never sort of a dull dull time out there mm. so you um you, your first lot of schooling was on the station and then all you boys and girls went off to sydney or various boarding schools what was that like to go from it's such a different type of environment how did that or how did you handle that yeah yeah that was even though uh sam and joe had obviously went away before i did down to sydney so they sort of come back and 
said what was happened in Sydney. Like we'd been to Darwin, Darwin or Catherine, obviously our local town, but Catherine was probably a thousand people. Yeah, so when we flew Sydney, I can still remember, seriously, like old Paul Hogan, like we turned up to the elevator, you know, and didn't want to step on the elevator because someone had told us, oh, that thing sucks your toe in and you get caught. And, <laughs> yeah, and then we were getting in the cab and driving up to school, which was Scots, and, you know, they sort of had their head out the window looking up at those skyscrapers and, yeah, like we were sort of... Like, it sounded real dumb, but it was real eye-opening, you know, to sort of go from Killarney, uh, whatever out there, and then they hit the big smoke in Sydney. And, yeah, there was once, just even when we first went there, like McDonald's, uh, Sam had been in Sydney already, so he knew it. And he, when we were in that taxi going up, he said, oh, let's pull into McDonald's and get something to eat. And I goes, what's this McDonald's? You know, you can just drive in there and they just have all this food. and you know, <laughs> like, yeah. So I still remember that. But, yeah, it was just real different, you know. We went down our class at Clarny was one classroom. As you know, Riley, your mum was a teacher there at one stage. And, you know, there was probably, what, 15, 16 minutes in a class and then we just got bundled up from there and went to Scots. And I think Scots was... 800 or 1200 kids and you know right at the top end of Sydney and yeah it was just it took oh Christ no you know six months eight months just to sort of half get used to it like that first day for me when they, they boarded up and we were in a room and they got clothes we went and got clothes and all that and then but Sam and Joe when they got there they were supposed to show me because her mum and the old fella never took us down they were supposed to show me around but when they got back there they just made it up with their mates and they just took off I spent my first day or two days I think just in that bedroom I didn't even go to school didn't go (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know where to go so yeah sounds a bit my all but but um in the end you from the stories I've heard, you thoroughly enjoyed um, your time at Scots and playing rugby and, and you did quite well sort of academically. And then after Scots, you went back to the station and you flew helicopters and where, what was the sort of thing? Yeah. Getting back into camp drafting, when did that all sort of take off again? Yeah, well, the time at Sydney uh, without sort of going on, but I was actually pretty good at sports, at rugby union and basketball and I sort of had the opportunity I think to go on to play for the school boys and where we went from there who knows but yeah it never really occurred to me back in them days by the way it was not professional so there was no money like you just sort of and um so yeah it was just like oh go home go home back there and we just went back to yeah just mustering and riding horses and what we did and then later this as I said this helicopter stuff turned up and then I went bull catching for a fair while off after the seasons at Clarny. I'd go here and there and over in the Kimberleys a bit and then yeah, in the late, no, early 90s, we had the helicopter. I decided I wanted to get my licence and I was really wanted to fly. So I went to Brisbane and got my licence down there and went back and then, yeah, sort of got into that side as well, like contract mustering and... Not only our places, but I used to go away and muster all over the territory. Like I went from Limbunya, MacArthur River to Tannumbrini to Buddy Tipperary to God knows, you know, just all over and ended up spending 22 years flying. And 
Yeah, and all that time I still had that desire to camp raft, but riding horses was sort of secondary, you know, you had this commitment of this business and everything, and so in that little period I missed out on making and breaking horses. Like at Clarny, I used to probably break in over the wet 40, 50 horses, and then when this helicopter turned up, it just got tied up with all of that, so in the end I had to buy made going horses and because I didn't have the time to put in them you know I'd sort of fly and then I'd come home but he'd late Friday afternoon and then load up and then drive Friday night to the draft and that sort of stuff mm. and that when I started to buy a few horses then my connection down here you know I bought a couple of good horses back early from Mark Buttsworth and Terry Hall and then there and then from there started in getting inquisitive, you know, all right, I might start travelling in the state and start and then started to look at Warwick and then travelling then, you know, from from those horses now. So when did you move, what year did you move from the Territory down this way? Um, well, it wasn't a cold transition. I actually had a couple of places, even when I had Mountain Valley and Merrifield, I had a place at Warwick, Warwick uh, Toowoomba, for a while through that and sold it and then I bought another place at Warwick while I still had them places and I'd come down over the wet to them but I actually finished everything in the territory in 2012 and yeah it was a really very big couple of months that year it was all in October I had sort of a lot of personal dramas my daughter Emily who got injured and was in a wheelchair she was in America and had a big sort of businessy thing with the banks and then I come to Warwick and then yeah I was just feeling bloody shit and everything was all there and then out of the blue yeah well not out of the blue but yeah had that first wind there on cooled us and it just sort of yeah made up for a really horrible you know 2012 and 2011 were a pretty ordinary time for me. One of the main reasons we started this podcast was to bring you guys as much information on the camp draft and cutting industry as we possibly can. If you're looking to improve yourself and your horse in the camp draft arena, be sure to check out Camp Draft Training Online. Their team brings you guys all the latest tips from top camp draft trainers across Australia. Be sure to go to their website and subscribe at www.teamcto.com.au or find them on Facebook at Camp Draft Training Online. Well, Ben, your whole life you've been around really top horses, and I mean, you've had some great ones in your time, so just touch a bit on, you know, what makes those good horses. Yeah, look, way back when we were a kid, we were really lucky back then, too. We, we knew what good horse was, like, the old fella invested heavily in the horses back then. He, 1968, he had the Australian record price for a horse um, quarter commando. He paid $14,000, I think, back then and bred that over the thoroughbred mares we had and we had these first cross quarter horses unbelievable horses so we sort of knew all the time then what was a good horse you know like i think a lot of people don't really know honestly what is a good horse there's average horse and okay horse but to feel a good horse is a different thing mm. and then Yes, I had some really good ones young i had comanches and rasputin and a mares tw and Another Silver Oak mare of Terry Hall and Doc Sally of Mark Butsworth. But I bought Cool Dust as an embryo of Bruce McNaughton. And 
paid him enough money too, I must admit. <laughs> I'm still waiting for you to give me that back too, Bruce. And, uh, or some. Say she's won it back by now. <laughs> and, um, yeah, but that mare, she was exceptional. And why I chased her or wanted her, beside being Romeo, I, I didn't really know Romeo at that point. I knew he was a good horse, but I was chasing from the mother's side. And his mother was the Oak Stardust, who was out of a mare called Baby Doll by Hollywood Return. And that was actually what I was chasing, was the Hollywood Return. Because where I saw her, Terry Hall brought her to the Territory in 2000, 2001 or two or something and campaigned her up there, her and her sister, Serene. Ben Hall was riding Serene. And, yeah, I just thought she was unreal. You know, he's really put it on her. She was a big yard mare and could handle real cattle outside, you know, tough cattle. And, um, yeah, I just thought, shit, you know, they're the horse you need. And so anyway, yeah, done the deal with him and went down and picked her up as a, a little wiener down at a place down there, where was it, outside of Scone? Down at Glenrock. Out at Glenrock. Yeah, yeah, Glenrock, yep. And then, yeah, took her home, back to Territory home, yeah. and just like normal, left her for a while and then broke her in. And But that mare, I think people who have these real exceptional horses, which she is, their stuff that they have is you don't just train it they got it you know and that's that's the thing that mare had it and sure i had to get it out of her too don't get me wrong but um that's what make them special you know like when i broke her in i can still remember broke her in rode her and everything i was doing i was just thinking geez this horse is just like a six-year-old you know just just too mature somewhere tomorrow she's going to go backwards she's going to do something and just never did and my first ride ever outside i broke her in a little place i had at catherine and I rode her out of the yard and there was a bit of cleared country there about a hundred acres of cleared country and there was a few cattle on there and I just galloped over, cared it, you know, and I'm expecting her like a colt to sort of go sideways, sideways. And no, she just went straight as and I thought, I'll just chase this cow. And just, you know, just seriously, I could not believe how she just fell in behind that cow. And she knew from there, like she just knew. And that's the first ride ever. And I thought, oh, yeah. And then anyway, from there, it just... Just went on and on, and she was a mare. I never ever ever had a fight with her. I never raised a spur on her in anger. Nothing. She just went forward, and yeah. Obviously, just... you've had a lot of success with her over the years. Um, you've won the White Gold Cup in 2012. Third on in the following year, won the first round of the Champions and Landmark Open Classic winner, and various different big titles and grandfather chinchilla restricted open. So she's been a really successful mare for you and um I think I think everyone can agree if you just have a really good rider combination, rider horse combination with her, such you know, when you see Terry Hall and Con Man, Mark Buttsworth and one Stolish Pepto, there's just those people you just see on a particular horse that you know there's just something extra special between them. Um and Warwick's coming up again and you're taking her again this year? Yeah, yeah, that's the plan. So, yeah, she hasn't got too much. So I, I think I'll go again next year. Because how old is she now? Uh, she's 18, going 19. 19, I think. 19, yeah, 2004. So 19, but uh, she's not a 
you know, she's a mere rider, she's acting and carrying herself like a 12-year-old, you know, like she's in her prime. So, you know, people decide, oh, get off her and let her go and breed from her. And and that's true, that's true. But sort of horses, my first thing with horses was not actually about breeding and money and all that. My first thing with horses was actually just to have a good horse. Mm. And so, you know, my answer to... Uh, put her in the long yard and retire is uh, I won't see another horse like her possibly I've got a couple of daughters and it's a foal of hers I'm hoping to be good as her but if I let her go you know you can go the rest of your life and not not have a horse like that so I'm going to ride her till she's ready to let go yeah she'll tell me when when she's had enough you know so one more year probably yeah so you got a few foals out of her what what have you got what have you got coming? Yeah, we bred, um, had a few sort of things along the way, but in the end had a good crop. I had to, well not had to, but sort of sold some. I raffled one for Emily once to get her to go to America, which Christina Jones bought, was a play, uh, one more Playboy filly. I really liked her, and I was sort of pretty sad I had to let her go. And then she had a full brother, they were twins, that Dave Thorne, now it's got and according to him he's Cameron Park at him for a while he's unbelievable and then myself at the minute I got a Chisholm filly out of her uh, about a two-year-old going on a three and I really really like her she's showing just exactly all the stuff that cool dust is showing she just her characters and everything is so similar so and then I got another little cult of my own I'm going to keep by one stylist, Pepto. I think he's. I broke him in only uh, six weeks ago, and I, I think he's going to be something really special too. Mm. So yeah, I got two, and I got another little foal coming by the new stallion. I got Metallic, Metallica. Who is that? Metallic Cat. One more romance cult. Um. Yeah, and then I had another couple. I had a Top Cat filly. Cameron Parker bought her off me. And I had another Colton Acres Destiny out of her. He was a good horse, good horse, good honest, but yeah, I think there was too much expectation that he was should have been super, super and probably put a bit too much pressure on him with that expectation in all honesty and so I just sort of I gave him to my brother in the end and he he camped drafts but yeah, so she's had some really good foals. Really good foals. Who are you looking to breed to this year to her? Yeah, look, there's one I'm, I'd like to go. I, I always like the quarter horse cross doing that. I've, that's everywhere I've went. Um, but I am considering a stock horse. And at the minute, I'm sort of thinking of Gigolo or that Hugh and Smith's horse, um, Mentor. mentor. Uh, I had a really good mentor filly and I've seen them go around. And then only, not only, I think they're going to be a good horse, but I'm just thinking that just to... If I did get a colt, it'd probably be a really good outcross later for all the people that got these conman fillies getting around, you know. To like people say, oh, I should breed the conman, but that's my biggest downside. I'm he'll be a beautiful horse, no doubt. But if I got the colt, you know, the conman colts at the minute are sort of getting like old acres destinies, you know, they're everywhere. And um, not saying that in a bad way, but uh, I just don't want to copy that same track now, you know. So. Yeah. 
Yeah, understandable. And you also um, have another mare, Acres of Roses, that you won the Gold Cup on in 2015. Yeah. And what have you been doing with her? Is she on the truck again? Yeah, yeah, she's still going. She's she's a really good mare. Um, Not, in all honesty, not at the calibre of cool dust, but she's got her own sort of real unique stuff. I really like her. She's uh, by Acres Destiny and her mother... As well, which I liked, is old fella Peter. Um, Peter Much. Peter Much, uh, bred her and everything. That's who I bought her off. And he had this mare called Xanadu. She was a peppy snake mare. Mm. And unreal, unreal mare she was. So she had a really good mother, you know. And yeah, I bought her, I don't know, about five years ago. I was just riding her for Peter there for a while. And then anyway, we did a deal and sort of. Um, I ended up with her, and yeah, same. We bred her. I got two at the minute. I got a Chisholm Colt by her. He's a really nice horse, and then I bred a filly. Just only weaned it by Metallica, and I really, really like that little filly, you know. But I haven't got anything going or performed by her yet. But yeah, she'll be on the truck. She's a bit younger than Cool Dust. I'll probably keep her going for another three years or something, and. Yeah, and then by then I'll have these two cool dusters, the one stylish Pepto, which I call Blue Dust, and the Philly is uh, Supernova. I should have them on the truck. I've converted my metallic cat, Stallion Metallica. He'll be on the truck. I'll have three of them. What's the other one? I've got a fourth one somewhere. Uh, oh, yeah, I've got another little... Um, mare out, out of a one more spin mare that I'm drafting as well so right. yeah I'll just sort of get them a bit solid before I let Cool Dust and Acres you know retire and should have another three or four I've never been a big horse bloke like you know generally four four horses maybe five that's that sort of I've never drafted more than that yeah okay so I mean you've won two Warwick Gold Cups and you've won plenty of open drafts just what's it like when the pressure's up, you know, you're in the final, you've got the big cattle, you know you're on a horse that can get you the big score. Just tell us a bit about what it was like to be in that final or those finals and, you know, your mindset you went down there, how you controlled your nerves and, you know, just a bit on that. Yeah, that's a good question. Like, um, I came down to Warwick, oh, geez, eight or ten times before I had success and I was winning everywhere else too, don't get me wrong, you know, like, I don't know what I was sort of thinking, but probably won 250 or 300 open drafts. Not at that stage, but, um, you know, so you're sort of winning everywhere and everything. But when you came to Warwick, Warwick was always something else, especially coming from the Territory. You'd come down and when we first came down, it was probably mid-80s uh, or late 80s, somewhere there. And... I'd known them by then, I only met, you know, like Bruce McNaughton and Terry Hall and Bob Palmer's and, you know, the back then Jeff Schroeder's and Lindsay Knights and, you know, all these big time names that come down and you'd read them in articles. And so when you sort of come down, old Bob Black, he was there, he'd won his three or four. And so you, when you sort of went in, it was surprising, even though you won all them drafts and everything, how much it had sort of changed when you got to Warwick. You know, you'd be so, oh, who's watching me? And you'd be more worried about making a mistake than actually going out and doing what you had to do. And it took a long time to, 
you think, oh yeah, next year I'll get that under control. But for me, I don't know about anybody else, for me, I didn't really for a fair while. Like we'd only come to Warwick and then go back to the territory, you know, with a seven and a half thousand K round trip. But eventually when I got cool dust, um, well, I had those other good mares too, but when I got to cool dust, cool dust sort of gave me another confidence thing altogether again. Like we won out at Condamine in the old Condamine. I'd won out the Chinchilla Restricted Open. Back then it was 185 in the Restricted Open. So you sort of got, yeah, I, I can do this, you know. And, and choose a mare that, uh, nothing, I've run a 95 on cool dust. I've run 24 and 25 yards and I've got 66 for horsework, you know. So I knew she was there. I, I, I believed in myself, but she gave me that extra belief. So when that time come in particular that year that I ran it off with Terry, that was 2012, like I'd had that, which you needed, Warwick, I'd had that sort of draw, not too bad. I think I come in once after a fresh fill, and then another time I went in and I can remember another bloke, I really liked the cow and I thought, oh, he was going to take it for sure. And he left it and I took it and I sort of got 291s. And then in the final I drew number one and I thought, shit, you know, it's as good a place as any. It was 35 in the final. I knew you had to hang on for a fair while. <laughs> and... Anyway, I just, yeah, by then I thought, you know, bugger it, you know, like, you just got to go now, no good overthinking everything, just go, trust yourself, trust your horse, you know, block all that other stuff out and get into it. And I did, and I think I got a 90 again, or a 91, and then I had to chit and wait right through to the end. And Terry was on, there was three of us had big scores, Terry had the equal, or he had one more than me, I think, going into the final. So I levelled with him, might have been Pete Comiskey, and he dropped his or something, so it was back to Terry, Terry was about 30 or something, and then he come out and he ran that equal score, and I'd ride, I hadn't had time to come around to ride the final, you know, it was sort of a, a thing, like I really look forward to that competition, like Terry's been my bloke I've looked up for many years, you know, as a bloke to beat and camp drafting and everything, and, and I like him, a really good fella. So it was really thing, and, and he was on Conman, you know, and Conman was on fire, and that was his peaking at his time, and so I thought, shit, you know, nothing better than going in here now, this is a really good competition and I'm just going to go for it, you know. So I, I was really looking to that runoff. I wasn't skimpering from it. And so we'd toss the coin, Lindsay Knight tossed the coin for us. And my old thing saying was, you know, tails never fails. <laughs> and I won it, I chose to go in. And um, yeah, I thought bugger it, you know, no good waiting and need Terry put a big one up and then, you know, makes you create something you don't. I like to ride first if I get the chance and you go and put the score up. So I took the thing and, yeah, I was good again. I got a really good bullock. I think I got a 90 or 91. And um, that Warwick score, by the way, is I think it's the highest aggregate still exists over Warwick forever. You know, them 391s in a 90. Yeah. It must have made you a bit nervous though, because I was only watching the replay the other day, and um, you came out on Cool Dust and you ran your 91, and Terry came out and um, he had a 24 yard, and we all know Conman is exceptional outside, so must have had you a bit nervous, and majority of people that know you know that you're very deaf, 
And um, so you wouldn't have been able to hear the score. And I noticed Terry walking up to you and you're still unsure at the end because you ran the 91 and Terry won, ran a 90 and you were unsure. So it was quite a lovely moment right at the end there with Terry congratulating you on the win. Yeah, yeah. Well, that ride, when I had my ride, I didn't walk out of the arena. I actually rode into the... Um, where the cattle go at Warwick and I sat there and I thought shit I've done all I can I'm not worth some other time you know you go away so you don't hear what the other bloke does and I thought I've done everything I can I'm just gonna have to sit here and watch it you know and if I got second well I'll give my shot at it and yeah no, exactly I saw him do that good yard and I knew he had one or two on me in the yard and then when he come out though I just see that well look just stretch that little bit extra that peg and I thought oh he's gonna probably drop him and he, he bent him and then there was a little fraction I think Terry was sort of going to quit on him too and then that bullock straightened and then Terry then he grabbed him back again but that bullock that he got as fast as he was he just every time Terry went to change that bullock just put that extra stride in on the changeover on the first to the second and on the changeover from the second to the gate and it just took him that little bit extra wider, you know, and he done bloody unreal, really, in all honesty, to gate that bullock. That was a fast, tough bullock, you know. But just that width, when it was finished, I thought, shit, I, I probably got him here, but I wasn't confident. And then, yeah, and when he rode over, I just galloped over to him as well, and I didn't know the score or anything. And, and he said, he asked me, <laughs> he said, who's won that? And I said, oh, you asking me, you know, I can't hear the bloody thing. I was going to ask you. And he said, ah, just be quiet. Listen, check on, as they're saying it now. And then he reached his over and he said, ah, oh, congratulations. So I said, oh, did I win that? And he said, yeah. <laughs> so he told me I won it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's what we do love about our sport. Um, well, in, well, camp drafting and cutting and any of the cow horse sports is that there is a big sense of camaraderie in it. You know, everyone's there for each other, really, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's you know you you got to respect your com competitors. Eh? you know like you you can't be angry or jealous or anything like that. You got to respect them because God at at Warwick, you know, there's a hundred riders there and a hundred horses. I know there's eight hundred entries or a thousand, but there's a hundred genuine riders and a hundred genuine horses can win that draft. Mm. So. You know, you just got to have that little bit of something goes your way. Everybody will tell you that. Because, um, yeah, so when somebody does win, yeah, you got to just respect that and appreciate it and, yeah, be happy for them, eh? Because, you know, then the day will come, it's, it's your day, you know, so. Mm. No, it's good. Camp drafting is really good like that. It, it's probably better than the most sports where they're that family-orientated sort of, you know, everyone's sort of pretty good about it if you're a success and you just fold up go to the next one you know and you all start again eh? yeah well what about um later last year you you were up doing the big three camp drafts and you had a bit of a scare with your your heart um you know you had a heart attack going around you're actually in a camp draft <laughs> like um yeah, just something amazing to happen at that time. Just just take us through a bit what happened there. Yeah, yeah. Well, it took buddy. It was at Chinchilla, and it was about lunchtime. So we'd run the first of the restricted open that morning and didn't do any good. I'd had two rides, I think, or three rides, didn't do any good. And, but I, I, I didn't say I, I felt 
anything really bad, but I when looking back, I wasn't feeling really good. I was sort of really tired, tired and everything. And I thought, oh, yeah, yeah. And then um, I actually went to go in to the draft and uh, she doesn't seem to be saying Terry much, but just before I was about to go in, I used to smoke then and uh, bloods on matches off him. And um, I was having a smoke there like that and even that smoke didn't taste right and I chucked it away. Anyway, I went in, got a good cow and everything and I was on acres of roses and um, yeah, what I thought was a good yard. I don't even know what my score was, but I thought it was a good yard. And I remember going around the first and going around the second. And just as I was about to go and do a changeover to go through the gate, I just, just everything just felt different. You know, I just felt really hot and something was going black. And But you don't have enough time to really make out what's happening and then just and then I remember thinking was a shit I'm gonna uh, faint or pass out here I'll have to stop this horse and then yeah, I don't I don't know really what happened I think I've been told I just fell out the back of the horse behind you know as I was going to the gate and um yeah I just sort of woke up I remember waking up and Jason wants to thank god I know Jason for a long time he was up in the territory as a young fella and um he was judging and I just sort of woke up and I just saw him, you know, on top of me like that. And and then I just felt all this real bad pain where he was, uh, what's the word, resuscitating me or something. I think he, he cracked all my ribs and everything and felt really sore. But even then, I never, when I woke up, I oh, yeah. And I think I asked for where Kylie and Clancy and them were. and But it hadn't even really occurred to me what had happened to me. And anyway... and. I think I went out again, I think a second time and come back and anyway, it flew me off to Brisbane and sort of thankfully it's bad to have a bloody heart attack, but thankfully mine was actually not a gammy heart. I did get a bit of heart damage, but I had blocked arteries um, for many years of just sort of neglecting myself, I suppose, from bad diet and stress and whatever you do, you know, living like you're invincible. And... Yeah, and after the operation, Kylie, and it was actually Warwick uh, Monday, I think, or Sunday, they operated on me. And, yeah, even then, it was pretty bloody scary because, you know, they tell you, you know, no real guarantee you're going to get out of this, so you're sort of very conscious of it. But at the time as well, young Clancy had got sick and he was flown out the day after me to the kids' hospital in things. So he was over there, Kylie was over there at the kids' place. And then my other three kids, Courtney, Linton and Emily, they were with me at the hospital where I was. Yeah, so it was sort of, yeah, yeah a bit of a tough little period then, you know. And anyway, it all worked out all good and I sort of come home. But it, um, yeah, it makes you reflect, no doubt, you know, no doubt on how to prioritise thing now and you've got to look after yourself a bit more, you know, and then not, you know, get too worried about things sometimes and just maybe be a bit more appreciative of just your everyday life, you know, sort of. Yeah, definitely. Well, Kylie, how, how did you feel when this was all happening? I'm sure you were stressed to the max. Yeah, it was definitely a um, scary time. Um, I must admit, I had been asking Ben since we'd had our young fellow Clancy. He was only um, not even one then. And I'd been saying, you know, you really need to go and get yourself checked out. He was a heavy smoker and I could tell his breathing was heavy. And I always kept saying, you know, you need to be around for this little fellow, you know. And 
And um, the morning of, he just, you know, I was looking back on photos and videos that I had with him playing with Clancy and, and he didn't look to be overly anything wrong and he sort of said he felt a bit off and went and jumped on his horse and, yeah, just sitting on the sideline there and just watching it all happen, it was very scary and I just clicked straight away. I just for some reason knew that that's what happened and fortunately Jason Wanstall was there and, and he started all the CPR type thing to, um, yeah, and... Um, ambulance was there and all the right uh, equipment was there fortunately um now we've heard since you know there's only a 10 percent survival rate for people like ben the fact that there would be five percent well five percent if you if you actually um have a cardiac arrest like you did so yeah ben only really had a five percent chance of survival that day Golly. so it's um it was very uh testing um it was very emotional and um, yeah, just something that you sort of never forget. But um, I think just what we would like to put out there is is um, for men um, and women, but particularly men who just neglect themselves, don't want to go in. Th- you know, they really need to um, to just book themselves in and go get a health check. It's quite quite a simple sort of thing to check your heart and those types of things, and and um, it could just it could just save your life really. So yeah, definitely. No, well, we're very glad that you're still here with us and still managing to put those horses around the pegs. And, um, you know, just on that a bit, you you, you did mention you got this stallion, Metallica, and, you know, um, I guess we're just after what what are the aspects you're looking for a good stallion, you know? What, what are the good ones out there, you think, and, you know, what makes them good? Yeah, um, that's always a hard one because I'm not... I'm probably, if you'd say, I'm more inclined to be a quarter horse man, in all honesty, but um, I like the Australian stock horse as well. And the Australian stock horse is more the thoroughbred type in there, you know, that gives him the leg and the rein and a good gallop. Yeah. And so it's a cross to me. It's not one or the other. And, and, it, and it can be a full-blooded quarter horse, it can be a full-blooded Australian stock horse, or it can be a combination. It's, it's actually the horse you know i think to people when they want to go and buy something is don't get tied up it's contrary to what most people say but don't get too tired just specifically chasing a bloodline like really look at the horse you know the horse's confirmation and what it can do if you want a competition horse the bloodline is important i said that earlier about cool dust you know but um in the end Cool dust could have had all of that, the bloodline, and not even worked. She fortunately turned out to have that uh, ultimate confirmation. So confirmation, I'm saying, confirmation, and then the breeding will put in the temperament and the ability and all that, you know. So so Stallions, I think, that really made an impact. Unarguably, Romeo, I think, in, is really. I think he, a con man, is doing a really good job right now. But I think Romeo put, and when I say Romeo, Romeo put a stamp like, you know, Acres Destiny won all his awards and everything, and he's a great horse, and he, he a lot of horses of his won all over, right? But when I look back, and I'm sort of being quite frank, when I look back, you can look back at Romeo and you can pick four or five great horses, you know, that had his bloodline. When you look back at the sort of artist, Freckles Oak, I think, was a really good horse. He, he threw a lot of, and Australia really had done well by his stuff. But there's other stallions at the minute, they're throwing good horses, 
that are winning, and they're winning too because of the jockeys, you know. But um, I've got to, in all honesty, say I'm not seeing great horses in them, you know. Yep. There is some, but for the amount of progeny that's out there. So to me, I think Romeo was one, and then um, I, I think our stallion, but it was back way back before... Uh, recognised enough for that horse we had that quarter commander who was by American Tijano Chico horse right he crossed on those thoroughbred mares you know I think he was an exceptional horse yeah um, but yeah I just think breeding is an individual just what somebody you know likes don't don't try and follow a trend mm-hmm. um, like and and pick something that suits your riding you know, like everybody's got a different style of riding, and don't try and pick a horse that not your style. Like you might idolise somebody and they oh that bloke, this is the type of horse he has and everything, but it's not you. You know, so don't don't go chasing that. Chase the one that you know you're gonna do good with. Yeah, no, that's definitely some good advice for sure. I'd say. Um... Yeah, one we all need to take on board plenty, not get caught up in the big names all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, they're important. Breeding is important, but just trust yourself a bit too, you know. Like, there's a lot of horses that come out of nowhere and win a lot of amazing great horses that just came from nothing too, you know. Mm. Like, um... Yeah, well, I think it's been uh, quite an informative um, podcast today with Ben. Um, we've covered quite a few aspects of your life and the horses and you've got a few more events coming up, possibly Condamine and Warwick, not doing Chinchilla this year just due to the drought. It's been quite a hard year with um, cattle and all the rest. Um, anything else coming up that you're looking forward to? No, just sort of them two at the minute. I think well, Condamine's even still probably iffy, but yeah, I'm looking forward to going to Warwick and... You know, Warwick, I want to go there and compete, no doubt, but I just sort of, at the minute or two, I'm more just want to get away from this bloody dry dust bowl sort of situation and have a week off, you know, yeah, too, if I can. Definitely hard times, I think, across the across the country. It's just the drought. Yeah. Affecting the uh, care drafts and the general the sort of, yeah, financial situation of everyone. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for coming here today, Ben, and we really appreciate having your time down here at the Nine or nothing podcast studio. So yeah. um yeah, thank you again and we wish you the best of luck for the rest of the year and yeah, we'll catch you about. All right, Mike. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Well, thank you again for everyone listening in to that interview with Ben Tapp. Certainly really did enjoy that interview. He was he's definitely a character and has some funny stories about him and Again, we'll just go through a little bit of a takeaway from that. And like my number one was that we all do come from a different story, you know, or a different background. And certainly Ben has had an interesting life growing up in the Northern Territory that, you know, not all of us are familiar with. And, you know, he's still been able to make it and, you know, really be a successful camp drafter and competitor with his, his own rights. And I guess my number two takeaway is those special horses don't often come around. So, you know, if you are lucky enough to get by one of them, you know, may do take advantage of that horse and and really, you know, show it to its full potential as he certainly has with all the great horses he's had. And um, my third one was, I guess, uh, he mentioned when he goes to choose or select a horse, he goes a lot on type and confirmation and, you know, 
could he see himself riding that before he even looks at the breeding or the papers of it? And I really do think that's a strong point. I, I know I I myself have fallen into that trap before, but yeah, I, I really thought that was some good insight from Ben there. Um, but yeah, other than that, I thought it was a great interview and I really enjoyed in, sitting down and talking with him. Uh, that's about going to do it for this episode. So I hope you all enjoyed our episode out there this week and make sure you contact us on Facebook message or Instagram at 90 or nothing podcast. We'd love to hear from you and yeah, ask us anything, you know, if who you'd like to hear us interview or what questions you'd like to ask, we'd love to hear from you. So, so please do not hesitate to contact us. That's going to do us for this episode and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.